0: The Future of Smart, a project of grantmakers for education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer at Grantmakers for Education, author of the award-winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. I'm just finishing a book that's well worth a read. The title is The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, and several of the book's major critiques and ideas resonated for me and relate to our episode and our guest today. The book critiques traditional narratives of human history and progress as linear in nature. It explores many of the myths popularized by European intellectuals that have led Americans and others in the West to organize our lives in ways that ostensibly reflect progress but actually constrain our individual and collective well-being. Many of the author's examples draw from critiques that were leveled by Indigenous intellectuals and scholars from the 18th century through to the present. Indigenous leaders observed their European counterparts and found them impoverished, living highly individualistic lives in which power over others and acquisition of wealth took precedence over community, relationships, and collective well-being. They heard tales of European cities filled with the poor and hungry, and questioned why European missionaries seemed to feel that their societies were more advanced than those that they encountered in the Americas. For those of you familiar with this podcast, you know that we hear from educators, scholars, practitioners, and funders who can help us better understand an approach to education that's grounded in holistic indigenous views of what it means to be a person what it means to exist in community, what counts as knowledge, and even what it means to learn and succeed in life. In the first few episodes of Season 1, we set the foundation for our learning by naming some of the assumptions of our existing system of education. One of the big drivers is our worldview. During the scientific revolution, philosophers and scientists found a new way to study and understand the world by putting human beings apart from it becoming objective observers. They wanted to know how the world was made. They wanted to take things apart and rebuild them, to predict what was going to happen and to know why. Many thinkers have referred to this new worldview as Cartesian-Newtonian, after the thinkers who influenced it the most. The Cartesian-Newtonian worldview privileged certain concepts over others, extraction and domination of nature over sustainability, abstraction over embodied knowledge objective knowledge and measurement over subjective experience and the influence of context, efficiency over process, storytelling, and experience, and eventually one conception of progress over the lives of other human beings. For those new to this podcast or wanting a refresher, I'd encourage you to listen to episodes two and three of season one, when we explored these two contrasting views of the world and how they influence how we understand and make sense of the world. The Cartesian-Newtonian worldview brought us the conventional factory model of education, which views learning as linear and structured, and neglects other forms of knowing and intelligence that humans are capable of. It uproots young people from their communities, presuming that learning and education happen in places called schools, while the rest of their lives happen elsewhere. This system standardizes people and labels and stigmatizes the ones who don't fit, like our guest today. Many students get left behind in this system, and in fact, that's exactly what the system was designed to do. Shape learners according to strict priorities, rank, and sort them. Most of us recognize that this model isn't working anymore, but until we really understand why, until we see what we lost when holistic indigenous values were pushed to the side, we won't really understand how to fix education. That's why it was so exciting for me to attend a conference this spring and have a chance to hear from Bill Milliken, the founder of Communities in Schools. As a new teacher in Newark, New Jersey in the late 1990s, I didn't fully understand what Communities in Schools did, but I did know the impact it had on many of my students and their families. It was only later when I learned more about CIS that I realized its power lay, not only in the way it pulled Newark's community assets back into schools and classrooms, more critical was how it ensured through its site coordinators that young people and their families were able to access what they needed to be successful. Our guest today, Bill Milliken, began Communities and Schools in New York City in the 1970s. To hear him tell it, his learning differences led him to have a lot of trouble in school, and he dropped out multiple times. He speaks of how he and several of his friends were made to feel worthless, which led them to seek and find community and a sense of belonging on the streets. Bill says that it was a volunteer who refused to be pushed away who made all the difference to his life. In the decade that followed his graduation from high school, he and his friend Vinnie learned by serving on the streets of Harlem, working with dozens of kids in what they called their street academies. Bill observed decades ago what we now know without question that approaching educational improvement as a content or logistical challenge won't make a difference. As he told congressmen on Capitol Hill 45 years ago, if we don't look at education through the lens of poverty, you're going to end up having parallel schools, those which have and those which have not. It's the biggest civil rights, economic and moral issue, and it will happen intergenerationally. His early work with colleagues led him to the idea of bringing community resources into public schools where they're accessible to, coordinated by, and accountable to the young people and families they seek to serve. While many policymakers and funders get caught up on scaling, Bill takes an approach that he describes as replicating smallness. He believes that two things that young people need to thrive are a caring relationship with at least one adult who knows they exist, and a small caring community inside of which they are known and can make a difference. He has a real sense of humor about the fact that it's only taken 45 years for those in positions to make a real difference to finally understand what he and his CIS colleagues know—that it's not programs that are transforming young people's lives, it's relationships A great program simply creates the environment for healthy relationships to form between adults and children. Young people thrive when adults care about them on a one-to-one level and when they also have a sense of belonging to a caring community. Something old does indeed become new. Welcome, Bill. I am so glad to have you on the program today.
1: It's a gift to be with you. I felt when we did have a chance to actually do a Zoom after that conference. I felt we had known each other before somehow. That it's neat when you find somebody that finishes your sentences, basically.
0: <laughs> so. Anne Anna of Avonlea or Anne of Green Gables would have called that kindred spirits. So, so Bill, I'd love to start with you. Just tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to this point, doing the work that you're doing with communities and schools. Well, it's
1: interesting that doing that book tour that We met, and the next stop there was an interview, and the person said, "How did you get involved in education?" And it was a pretty uppity group, (laughs) high level, a very serious group. And I blurted out, "Today I got kicked out of high school," and the whole place got very silent (laughs) because he didn't know how to have a follow-up question. But I think if I hadn't been dismissed from school and been in trouble, ironically. I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing. But uh, I, that's why I always start by saying if I wouldn't be literally alive or here to be able to talk to you, if a caring adult <laughs> from a volunteer for an organization called Young Life had not come in a pool hall in Pittsburgh and got five of us to turn around our lives and gave us some hope. And we, we were, only a few more than us made it to 30 without being dead or in jail. Mm-hmm. And so I found from the beginning, and it's a common thread that nobody ever remembers anything I say, it's the relationships that change people, not the program. And the program simply has created the environment where healthy relationships can happen between adults and kids. But it's love. If you can't use the word love, then you won't understand what I'm talking about because it's, it's a love that is willing to be in people's face. And we gave this volunteer a really hard time. I, but it was the first person to ever believe that mm. I was worth something. And most of my friends and I felt worth less. Mm. The last thing I'll say there on that is that I di- they didn't know about where I was in school and that it was a long time ago. They didn't know about learning differences and learning differently. I didn't grow up in a poor neighborhood. It was very middle class. But once I was dismissed, I was in with some really rough people and got into, like I say, every day is a gift to me.
0: Thank you for sharing that. And and your statement about relationship takes me to where I want to go. So you released a recently revised version of The Last Dropout, and it was sharing some of your reflections and lessons from the work that you do with communities and schools. And one of the big ideas is that programs don't change people, relationships do. And you were ahead of that conversation when you began Communities and Schools, because I think today we're hearing more people recognizing that we need to support students socially and emotionally. They need to be in contexts and relationships where they're known, they're seen, they're valued. I'm curious about your reflections as you've observed the field evolving over the last three decades. What's exciting you about how the conversations have changed? And is there anything that worries you about where we are in our conversations right now?
1: How long do we have? You can take as much (laughs) as you want. I may edit it down. No, but... Part of it is, I have to give you context for that, because what happened when I got helped out, one of the friends that got helped out, had been on drugs and stuff and that, and we made a life commitment to give the rest of our lives back to the streets, not knowing <laughs> serendipitously I'd end up in education. I, my person that helped me out, I eventually finished three freshman years of college, which totally qualifies <laughs> me to be seen as an educator. God has a great sense of humor. But my education happened from 1960 to 71 because when my friend Vinny got out of jail, we moved into Harlem. And I spent the decade of the 60s there. And I learned that along with reading, writing, arithmetic, (laughs) what was needed was the fact that every kid needed somebody that cared they existed that was willing to have an irrational commitment to them (laughs) making it. And two, they needed safe, caring environments. It took me 11 years to learn five things. <laughs> but one was you start with relationships. Second, people are hungry for community and mm-hmm. that they needed that. And for five and a half years, I had 30, 35 kids living with me off the streets because Benny would help on the drug thing. And I learned, wrote a thing called Tough Love back then. And I had to learn a lot with caring. You had to have accountability. So those that was another building block for what I'm doing now. And then one day, he says, How do we say we care about kids and let them live on rooftops like he used to? So I was able to get a Trinity Parish in New York to give me a couple of tenement apartments. So five and a half years, I had 30, 35 kids from the streets. I unfortunately spoke at five funerals. So I, it was very painful, and particularly because not that many blocks away were the wealthiest people I'd ever met, and wondered why, just that close together, some were dying, and I wondered where justice was. And mm-hmm. so that got me into that. That was in my twenties, and I was learning. But we said if we really care about these kids, we need to get them a marketable skill, which was the third. And Vinnie had an eighth grade education, and I had my three freshman years, so that was perfect to start an education <laughs> movement. But back then, a, a GED was worth gold. Parenthetically, one of the we got all these people from Columbia University, Princeton, Columbia. They were all marching on this and that. And I said, instead of teaching one on some, instead of marching one on some, you be teachers. I know how to turn kids on to to learning, and you, on the I, I end a living if you can then turn them on to learning and I didn't know that would be another undergirding of our whole view of how to affect that once they got turned on there's people like i there was an article in the papers this weekend about bill Bradley. who was a person he was one of them of our people on the academies uh, it was that group, and we I found out wealthy people called their schools academies, so we called it a street academy to give the dignity. The riots hit, long story short, all of a sudden I had to make peace with Wall Street because mm. they were nervous and they wanted to help. And I found out there were a lot of caring people there. They just, we needed to build a bre- bridge from their street to our street. So this little street academy idea within less than two years, we had eight, 18 schools, we had an IBM school, at and American Airlines, Union Carbide. they put their name on it. The mm. students were the teachers and we were the ones who were the relational routers to get them into these storefronts. And then we started, there was no high school in central Harlem. and Congressman Rangel was there, so we needed school. So we found out some kids wanted to go beyond to college, so we called it Harlem Prep School. (laughs) And then it moved across the country. It was because of that. I'm a person that you have to have context. The problem is we don't look at how we got to where we are, we want to solve the problem right in that moment. So I'm self-taught, which is dangerous. And I traced it back to right after World War II, and I won't go into it all here, but if that's when the farmers came back from the war and didn't go to the farms, you had the great book that was written about the migration from the South to the man-child in the promised land and didn't find promised or land. You had all these things. My theory was we pulled apart the safety net for children. So what was the safety net, which was the extended family in relationship with the Pace community with the mediating structure. So if the barn burns down, you have a healthy community, you rebuild the barn. Hillary later writes the book, based on the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. I said, we don't have a village. And what my theory was, and it's getting to be more and more accepted, it only took 45 years, uh, overnight success. But I said, I believe schools fell into the vacuum that was created by the breakdown of this community. And we were seeing the early in Harlem, the Lower East Side, the Bronx, we were starting to see schools more and more being asked to be mother, father, sister, brother, social worker, guard. they fell into the vacuum. Which was unnatural. School was to be a tool, not the center of the community. So we said, for the foreseeable future, schools, if we're going to win or lose the future of America at the schoolhouse door, but unfortunately, you're going to think it's an education problem. And I was just 31, and I thought people would listen. And I thought these things called hearings, I didn't know they were called hearings because nobody listens. And I thought if I just told them, <laughs> they'd listen. But I said, if you don't look at schools now as the centerpiece, you're going to look at it as a content issue. And I say, if you don't look at education through the eyes of poverty, you're going to end up having a, a parallel schools, those who have and those who have not. And you're going to have pockets of poverty all over because the real issue is that we are losing a, thousand, a million kids a year. I said, that's why it's the biggest civil rights, economic, and moral issue, because when you care about the kids we cared about, they're going to end up in jail, they're going to end up mm-hmm. welfare, et cetera. So it's everybody's issue. And I said, we're going to have these pockets of poverty all over the country, which unfortunately happened of intergenerational. Yeah. So if you want to understand what we do in our theory of change, you have to understand it comes out of that. Fact that we see the schools, the hub. Now you got the community school movements. All these things have happened. We just happen to be there and seeing it at that time. If you don't no. have the context, that everything we talk about is how then is this different? What was the thing that began to where we are today, being this large drop No,
0: I I appreciate the context. If anything, I think this podcast is about trying to help broaden some of the conversations we're having, right? To recognize the context that that sort of drove where things went. So I wanna, for folks who don't know what communities and schools is and what the model is, I wanted to start with chapter four of your book, which is called Bureaucratic, Fragmented and Duplicative or personal, accountable, and coordinated. And I love those two groups of words because as folks who've listened to this podcast know, there are sort of two worldviews that we think about in terms of driving systems. There's one that's more conceptualized and decontextualized and fragmented, and the other is more whole and connected and embodied. So can you tell us a little bit about the distinctions that you're drawing in that chapter, why they matter, and how your heart transplant, the work that you do with, with CIS, how it reflects the latter?
1: Yeah, this is really a good question. Maybe I'll jump into 1991. I thought the theory of change in America needed to change because government was telling us we had to bring change every two to four years and foundations and philanthropists usually said three years. So I asked the question, what major change has happened in history in two to four years? So we had to have a hundred year plan that outlasted all the different changes. We had the audacity. (laughs) Our goal was to get big enough of a grassroots movement, to get big enough so that we could affect legislation that would help all children, not just the ones that we were. They finally got to the top people. And they said it was the answer to two questions that the only time in my life I got more money than I asked for. They asked the question, we give to a lot of charities. Why should we give to you? What makes you different? I said, you build your business on an integrated system. And this was way back. I used the illustration of a hat. I don't even know if the word haberdashery is even a routing board. But the men's story, I said, you wouldn't sell your hats in one part of town, your shirts in another, your shoes in another. You'd be bankrupt. So your philanthropy side, you end up giving, you build silos, you fund, wonderful organizations, one of our biggest partners is Boys and Girls Clubs. But you there, you, you do in one part of the time, the health people in another, the faith people in another, the criminal justice. A kid needs a PhD in systems to get help. Plus, you, you further fragment the community because you're funding silos and specialties when you ought to be using your money as leverage and to reward people to be integrated systems. So what we did is we put our relational router inside the schools. And this is key to, if anything, Mm -hmm. people here, because we just got this huge amount of money from the bombers because they saw that it only took 45 years for people to see it, that this router in the school was transformational of what they were doing in the business technology world because I said, if you want to have an integrated system, you have to have an integrator. So we put a conductor at the door, or we have a daughter that's a nurse. And you're a nurse in triage. Some people come into the hospital. They just need a bandage or their hand. But others need intensive care. So if we're going to free up the teachers to be teachers and not mother, father, sister, brother, social worker, hall guard in these poor schools, then we need to free them to be up teachers and the principal to be the principal. You've got the router at the door, who see you no know, which kids are coming in that just need that intervention, that caring adult, a mentor. To other kids are gang banging, <laughs> drugs, all these things that are. Then you use the word case management more intense. So, the dream of the future, and some people, is that they see that router in the particularly the Title I schools as important as the principle. When you have that team together, the external and the internal, that's the game changer.
0: So you mentioned, right, that it's taken 45 years for people to really catch on to this. And I think you're right. We're hearing more and more people pointing at and talking about what you call a relational router. But what have you learned about what makes it hard for us, for schools, for our current system to have support, and sustain relational routers. I'll give you the example way back when individualized education plans were intended to be, you see a child, you think about what they need, and you develop a plan for them that's individualized. And then our existing system took that and it turned it into something that's very different from the original intention. So I guess what I'm asking you is, okay, so people are now seeing the need for integration and having somebody who does it. What are the potential pitfalls what do we have to watch out for so that what started as a great idea as it expands doesn't become a shell?
1: Again, it all depends on people thinking differently. Remember that so many really good people in all our best schools and experts and data collect, they were, they were trained basically in a very linear way. And it, this really takes getting outside and thinking differently rather than trying harder there's plenty of pitfalls right now out there. My friend, Dan Dominich, the head of AESA, said that we used to get on these calls with superintendents, and it was about buses and reading, writing arithmetic, books. Now it's suicides, guns, and drugs. So you got a whole another set. Then Mm -hmm. I was in a breakfast meeting this morning with some people high up in policy and all that stuff, and everybody's under attack. Teachers are under mm-hmm. attack. School system runs, so you've got this bringing together holistic or holy communities, and you have people beating up the very people that mm-hmm. we need desperately to stay in the schools and not get burned out and make it. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but yeah. it's the you have to understand the environment we're in. And understand that so many decision and policymakers, it was like No Child Left Behind was a tremendous idea. And it showed that we all can learn. All kids can learn. All. And I simply, when I had a chance to talk to them back then, I said, but not all children go to school equally. Mm -hmm. And I said, if you don't look through the lens of poverty, you aren't going to solve the problem. And I really want to spend a minute on this because I had the chance back when they had what was a nation at risk. And I was just, I was Forrest Gump in the group. I always end up in these groups. They all know who the hell I am. But I just asked the question. I said, if you're going to aim all your resources at the content, but if you don't understand the anchor that's pulling down education, if you mm-hmm. look through poverty, you free up that anchor, which we call Title I schools now. We were saying this for years. You free that up. The innovation that can take place. Now, the advantage of the crises we're going through is I've seen more innovation, more people mm-hmm. open to change, people that used to resist. It's no longer trying to get in, they're pulling us in. Mm-hmm. So, in this midst, and I want to say one other thing because Arnie Duncan's on our board and we were talking during the pandemic and I was writing the thing called A Big Idea. And he was helping me on it about having a, t- a router in every title one school in America over the next 10 years, and that we would free up so much money and so much, if we had the success rate that we've now had 11 evaluations that over 90% of our kids who in that bottom third are making it into Mm -hmm. the next level, et cetera. You do that, and with all this disruption going on, you can begin to replicate some of these small caring communities on a large scale.
0: You talk about replication and replicating smallness. So tell us more about that because it, it feels like it's different than scale in the sense that many funders and folks use it. So what's replicating smallness? Why does it matter?
1: But also I uh, just, you know, scale's one thing. They say, well, when are you going to get to scale? And then people say, you are, you're at over 3,000 schools and you're going up to 4,000. No, you go from scale to institutionalizing an idea. That's the next big steps. that We use these terms, but when I say replicate smallness on a large scale, then you can cut all this out because my wife gets nervous when I get asked this question in front of the group (laughs) because of my learning issues. And I was a street organizer back in the 60s I, because I have reading retention issues. I had two little red books, one on my left side. One was the quotations of Chairman Mao and I went to Mao groups. And the other was the quotations of Chairman Jesus. Mm. And I realized, and then I saw Lennon, because I'm self-taught, I said they all had the same basic principles of replicating smallness on a large scale because they knew the two key things. And I've said this, and I'll say it till I die. The two key things, everybody wants an adult that gives a damn they exist. And somebody cares about their existence, are willing to be there and be with them And the second is they want a small, caring community. Well, you look at Mao. He took those principles feeding people, taking care of people, but it was built on power and hate and takeover. Jesus was about loving your neighbor, caring about others. It was most right. It's the opposite. But both of them grew because they created small, caring communities and knew what the key principles. I was once said, how. All these communities are different. How do you do communities and schools in rural West Virginia and Chicago? I said, they're going to look differently, but it's like hot wax. You can pour hot wax over any environment and it's going to look different. But what are the underlying principles? What are the And so that's when you go back to integrated systems, small, caring, building the cup to pour the content of education into it. In the spiritual world, they, you know, I guess, would say, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. We've been pouring all these new ideas, these curriculums, really good stuff. But they fall through the cracks and a few kids make. it. Few, you don't impact the institution itself. So you have to be about the caring adult, but you have to change the very institutions that they're in. Does that make sense?
0: It makes a ton of sense to me. This podcast is all about trying to say, we're swimming in water that is about the old system. And so oftentimes when people use these words or think about innovation or whatever, it's hard if you don't understand what the alternative is, right? You think in an ecological way. You think about systems. You think about wholeness and integratedness. I do too, but a lot of people don't. And I guess what I'd love to hear from you is, what have you seen be successful in helping people make that mindset shift around what it is we're trying to do, how we have to do it differently, how we have to be differently in the work. Because that seems to me like a one of the challenges and opportunities we have is to change how many people inside of the existing system see and do the work. So what have you found helpful, useful in your experience over the decades?
1: Where I'm seeing the big shift, it's exciting in the sense that with the growth, there's all the negatives and the positives about technology, but it flattened things out and it got less linear and they begin to think in systems. And for instance, I got that early break when we were a grassroots organization in Atlanta where Carter gave us our Jimmy Carter gave us our break. I got to go back with the first alumni <laughs> that we had that used to come to school with a gun and then ended up number one in G- junior OTC in the country. And, and I said, you and I were so different. You, a farmer, me, a city kid. And I, and I said, what was it that made you believe in us early? He said, anybody that's an engineer that is, listens to you will understand integrated systems. He, he, I I didn't know if you'd succeed, but I knew you were under something new because we were the old conveyor belt of organizing. You were early in seeing that integrated systems. And so then I got into the music industry, that world. All of a sudden, people were understanding because they understand it's five basics that make all music, whether you do Mozart or whether you do rock and roll. And so they that kind of thinking, and that's why I fight so hard for the arts and I fight so hard for the music because it's that part of the brain. It's that not getting rid of the other side, but when you bring those two worlds together and in the technology world, that it's not an accident that the two biggest gifts we've got in the past two years come out of the tech world Mm -hmm. because they understand integrated systems. And all of a sudden the lights go off. What they didn't understand is that they themselves were funding silos, making our job harder. But if they funded the conductor, then we're integrated. And by the way, one of the reasons we've had such bipartisan, cross the aisle conservative liberals is that when people would ask me questions because they had me labeled with that time long hair and all that, they said, you're more conservative than we are. Because I said, every dime we waste really makes me angry and hurt because that's more kids we can help. Mm-hmm. So it's not just you, what's catching on is we aren't only changing lives, but we were studied by, they did a study of us, and now a new study's being done at Harvard on us that was done by BlackRock, Morgan Stanley, and mm-hmm. OMB It took a snapshot of a 25-year period and found out we were returning $11.60 back for every dollar invested in us. And they didn't believe the street guy when I got in the business world that we aren't only going to turn around lives. We're going to have the resources to do it because you get a return on your investment. When you aren't running all over town needing a PhD in systems to get help, we bring the help to where they are. So, people that think this way are beginning to emerge along so that you have the form and the content. I was on the phone with this big international guy yesterday that does big systems change and scaling on food programs and all that. And we were talking about social capital. But you unlock, you you look at social capital, it's all built on trust. And the three words I wrote down were bonding, bridging, and linking all three of those. That's why I said we we don't need Facebook. We need people in people's faces where we're in the same time, space, and relationship. I always thought synergy was great, but you can't have synergy without propinquity. If you aren't (laughs) in the same time, space, and relationship, how do you have relationships? So what's exciting about talking to you and what you've been about, and literally everybody was so happy that I met you, that you were really one of the cutting thinkers out there. And it gives me hope that as an older guy that you're so far ahead of where I was at your age in thinking, but most of my thinking is now paying off. People
0: mm-hmm.
1: didn't take grassroots people seriously. And if they didn't have the right degree, that we have been validated by some people who studied us and said, hey, they're getting results. We've had 11 independent evaluations. Bomber said, We're the most evaluated program in America. So <laughs> we don't need to evaluate it. We just need to get an army of people that Do begin it. to think differently. And, and I think you have philanthropy people that listen to you. I wish they would use their business principles of using their money not for more programs, but as leverage. Why don't you reward us to work together instead of in silos? And, and again, before we, end, I need to tell you that in that hundred-year journey, yeah, we spent. In, we finally earned the right and got into the legislation integrated services. Mm. In this new education, they say don't throw out the old. You do need to know how to read, write, and all that. But if you put in social emotion, you put in that the the relational and emotional intelligence. You get that balance, so you can tell I'm in the midst of all the pain and crises and stuff out there. I have more excitement for what you all are going to do in this next round in any way a few of us elders can help.
0: When we first talked, I told you Communities in School was one of the first organizations I worked with in Newark before I started teaching there because you were in Newark. And so for many of us, we're standing on the shoulders of the work that you and others have done over the last kind of 50 years. And it's great to hear that in your, that you're seeing these conversations upticking, but I want to run something past you, right? Because I think some of what I'm hearing you say in a lot of your remarks is the kind of centering what human beings need and what human beings need is not abstract ideas and theories of change. They need us. We need to be in place with people in the community who understand their context and to give them the support and structures and capacity building support when they need it to build what's right for their community. And and that is something that I think cuts across the liberal conservative divide, and I'm using air quotes that folks can't see, but so many of the debates we have where people put themselves in one camp or the other is because I think we're fighting about some abstractions. But once you get down into communities where people know each other and they have to see each other in the grocery store, at the library, the museum, the schools, I think you're hitting on a way to start something which is place-based, which is local. Does that resonate for you? That's what we have to keep in mind as we move forward, is to not lose that.
1: You couldn't be more on target. And again, it all comes back to to being with the people. If you're a mother in rural America, or if you're a, a mother in Beverly Hills, or if you're a mother or father in the Bronx, if you love those kids that they love and you're there as a support system not to help or be paternal,ly to be there as part of that community rebuilding that, that what we said when the barn burns down we're all in this together i don't get these parents asking me what my politics is they just mm-hmm. say we mm-hmm. love your kid you love your kid we're here to support each other we're in this journey together people are so hungry that somebody gives a damn they exist, and this is why these kids are committing suicide, or get, and they're getting gangs because they're so hungry for community, and if that's the only people that, that, and you find out that, and you find out they want somebody to give a damn, and that, that there's a caring community, and if it's not a caring community, it's gonna be a chaotic community. Mm-hmm. We know that if a kid doesn't have hope, that hope is the transformational thing. It's just misused often. Mm-hmm. But if a person doesn't have hope, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to hurt you, or they're going to hurt themselves. If my friend Vinny, and I was part of a group hurting people was a young person, he was part of putting a needle in his arm. Mm. Somebody came along and turned our lives around, and because of that, a whole lot of lives have been changed in our journey. Mm. We're all hungry for it. Now, how to actualize that in a fragmented, siloed world Because we've all been in our little silos, we need the philanthropy community. We need government to reward people to come together. As I say, along with your synergy, you need propinquity. You need to be in the same time, space, and relationship to have that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And it's either going to be built on hate and destruction, or it's going to be back to Mao and Jesus (laughs) about caring, loving communities. Mm
0: -hmm. That may seem
1: too simple, but it's hard.
0: Uh, Well, you know, it's funny. The most powerful ideas are often simple, but I think you hit on it, which is what does it mean to live into those and to operationalize them? And that is not always simple, right? It's because it requires, I think of it as building different muscles. So I'm wondering if there's anything else. I appreciated you named for funders. They need to be incentivizing the sort of reintegration of work, the working together across nonprofits. Any other specific suggestions you would have for funders, particularly? Yeah, I,
1: one of the reasons we've had long-term funders, I wouldn't be here if there weren't some people who've been with us literally from for 47 years. They came and saw and felt and tasted what they were going to be involved in. So one is, and we do this with our boards all over the country, come every year, go be with the people. I have one of the biggest vendors I had literally said, one hour in one of those schools you took me into, all the stuff I read, all the studies, all the programs, all these advisors, I felt it. I Mm -hmm. saw it. That's why that little film we sent you, Push, it's like the bomber said, once they saw what that, Conductor was what they did—that life on life. So they got to walk in the shoes of the people that they're looking at. Too, they got to think differently. They got to think: How do we create holy systems? That what I'm doing in funding the music world? How's that fit in with the math world? How's that fit in? It's totally changing the delivery system. It's not. This is big, but you got to break down those silos and create a whole different delivery system to build. All we've done it is in one segment in schools, but it's a model that can be used in the community, that you've got to have that person out there that's bringing all the pieces of the puzzle together. So I just wish more and more funders realize that the real big institutional money, even though they don't like it, is government. And it's going to be, they need to be wise on how they can use the private money to leverage. That's what made me so happy about West Virginia is we use the private money to leverage the public to where they institutionalize the idea. Now it's growing throughout the state and people like Blue Meridian are saying, can you do that in other states, et cetera. So our goal is to be in 72,000 Title I schools in America. (laughs) And if we release that anchor, and we aren't going to do it alone, the whole movement has to make it happen, but they aren't going to do it. No, Mm -hmm. you can't have an integrated system without an integrator.
0: Amen. And I just want to go back to one thing, because you talk about the shortcomings of charity, because a lot of our listeners are folks who are involved with efforts to do good, whether it's personal contributions, organizational contributions. So how do we avoid falling into the charity trap?
1: There's a difference between a charity trap and charity. A charity trap means that's all you think about. And I feel good about myself because I, no, we need charity. As I started earlier, Maslow knew it. If you don't have food, clothing, shelter. So if I'm coming to school and I was sleeping on out on the street the night before because I couldn't, they evicted me, or my mother was raped, or my father was sent to prison. It's a little hard to learn algebra next to a person who comes from a very healthy carry. It's just an equity issue, not just, but... It, it, the it, equity yeah, issue. Yeah, it. So charity, yeah, thank God for charity. And I had this idea that I put together for the faith community, a curriculum that's now being tested by Lilly Endowment, where I wrote a curriculum about moving from charity to change. We need the charity, but the change is the justice side. And I said, we need to think differently. And if there's people that are listening to this from the faith community, we need to do that. But the justice side, it used to be faith and justice, but now it's faith, justice, and place. And where you can have all faiths come together is around place. And you can, and I created a curriculum to ch- change what if you tithed, because all the faiths have tithing, what if you tithed your art time? What if you tithed your legal time? You tithed your dental time? One of the biggest dropout issues is over kids with abscessed teeth. People, the average person don't know that. Hmm. The second is not having eyeglasses. What if you saw 10% of your time with seeing kids that can't afford an eye doctor or can't afford a dentist? Or how do I not just have helping people get re-entry from prison, but how do we redesign prisons using our tithing concept of using our brains, our legal part? So I'm trying to get the faith community to think in the 21st century that it's place that brings all faiths together around a common table, bringing not only their charity or mercy side, but their justice side, which takes on a new form by creating place. How do we take that which is fragmented and make it whole? In theological terms, holiness is simply taking that which is fragmented and make it whole.
0: Is um, that helpful? I really, it is very helpful, and I appreciate it. And I want to go back, because you've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation that you learn differently, your, your brain is differently, you self-taught. And I, I so appreciate it, because I think it is often the ability to see the world differently right? That can be a problem in some of our schools, particularly as our schools have gotten more and more narrow. I think there are more and more of our kids that we don't see and honor and recognize because their brains work differently. But I think it's their brains, including yours, that see the world in a way that is going to make really amazing things happen. And I think one of the things we've done over time is is not allow enough of the kind of folks who see the world differently, experience the world differently at the table as we're having conversations about what our kids need and what education needs to be. So. It,
1: just to be frank, it's only taken some years to get to the table because you're seeing you're that liberal, you're that person, you're that community person. Now, our prisons are full yes. of people like me. And that I took a the head of a major Wall Street firm guy that became a friend. I said, "I want to take you on a tour of to Harlem at seven in the morning, and take you by a park." And they, there's these little tables they're sitting around. I said, "They're going to do more money transitions transactions today than you are. They just think differently. There's an underground economy, is basically run by people like me, who couldn't make it because our brains couldn't." Maybe we had dyslexia, or in my case, what was called imprinting, where I could read something, but I couldn't retain it. And that's why I got kicked out of school. I did something bad when a teacher embarrassed me. She mm-hmm. just didn't embarrass me when I was too angry. And, and you got to, anyhow, I don't want to get down yeah. there. No, so, I just,
0: I, but I just wanted to name it. I think it's it's why I have By the is... way,
1: this is, if you want to, curiosity is the key word out there, and part of the problem if we don't balance it. The technology better free us up to get back to the arts and back to the... Because you got machines, the AIs and all that can answer all your questions. So if you don't... Have, if the only question is, how do I pass this test or how do I get this information? You've killed curiosity. You've killed creativity. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we got to push more and more of the arts and the music mm-hmm. and the... You said, How do I learn? I just remember a guy, first time I'd ever been in a museum. I said, How the hell do they do that? And I found out there was five basic colors. And then you had, other, and some people created these great pieces of art, others just went for fun. But it's the same with music, there's these basic elements. And the whole universe is, I could go off on that. Uh, It's all designed in a very integrated way. And when we disrupt that.
0: (laughs) Um, Bill, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. And Let's keep it
1: up. And please see us when you come back this way. I will. All All right. right. Blessings.
0: Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of grantmakers for education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the Future of Smart, visit olca.com, ulcca.com.